Welcome to the Voices of Grambling podcast. My name is Brian McGowan, and I am the William McIntosh Endowed Professor of Liberal Arts in the History Department at Grambling State University. I will be your host for today's episode. Today, we will be discussing the first five episodes with members of Grambling's History Department. I'm Dr. Gaidi Farage, uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at Grambling State University. I'm Dr. Edward Holtz. I am an Assistant Professor here at Grambling State University and the Interim Department Chair of History. Thank you for joining us. Um, today, what we're planning on doing is, is talking a little bit about the first five episodes in the podcast series that um, we have heard, and uh, just kind of talking a little bit about some of our reflections on those as historians, as um, people who, who in, in some cases uh, have worked with some of the, the individuals who were interviewed or some of the individuals who did the interviewing. Um, so one of the, one of the things that I, that I wanted to kind of start this, this roundtable with was asking, after listening to the first uh, five episodes, um, what are some of the major themes that uh, stuck out to you? Um, anyone want to want to take that one and start from there? Um, so one of the things that jumped out to me, I think, was longevity. Um, I think it's really interesting sometimes to hear stories of people that really have an institutional history at a place. Some of these people had actually grown up around Grambling, um, gone to you know uh, elementary school and high school on the campus, and then eventually go to university here, or their families have a tradition of going to school here. And I think sometimes, as historians, we look at people who are uh, much bigger, have these larger stories, and, and are you know, credited for impacting history in a particular way, as opposed to people who are just kind of part of institutions. And, and those are the people who really sustain institutions over time, who have that longevity, who have that real history in a place. And you might have famous people who come out of a place like Rambling, like everyone, you know, we talk about Willis Reed or Doug Williams, who are athletic stars but those people don't sustain institutions. And so I thought it was really interesting to just kind of hear from people who have this longer memory of the place. That's a very good point. One of the themes that stuck out to me was this idea of community and accessibility in the sense that we had multiple individuals who live next door to the president, changed their clocks, had a conversation with them outside of the institutional setting and you further see the community in the sense that there was a person to go to, that there was a sense of if this needed to be done, that's the person, and that person might just happen to be your next-door neighbor. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's a really good point. The, um, the community feeling around the university as being something bigger than just a university, but a... But, but a um, a, a real place, you know, where these people lived and in some cases lived most of their lives, maybe their whole lives. You know, it wasn't, it's not just a university in the sense of like my alma mater where I haven't been back to my alma mater in 25 years or something at this point. And it's really Grambling operating at two levels, Grambling the University and Grambling the community town. You heard village come up a lot and so you have Grambling operating in, in the two senses, both the academic setting as well as the, the, the village that's described. Yeah, I think we got a really good sense of that. Um, I was thinking uh, as part of this broader program, broader voice, Voices of Grambling program, we've had a number of speakers on campus recently and just uh, two weeks ago we had um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Stefan Bradley 
and uh, Dr. Jelani Favors on campus. And one of them, I think it was Professor Bradley, but uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, was really making a point of talking about African-American spaces. And when was talking about how, in, in his context, he was talking about it on Ivy League, Ivy League institutions and African-American spaces. And I thought that was a very interesting concept. And I think at Grambling and through the interviews that we've done, I've come to appreciate that in a, in a different way, in a broader sense, in talking about what, what you said, Professor Farage, about the, the, the community and how you know the space that we're talking about here for African Americans is even larger than an HBCU. You know, it's it's this very broad communal sense, and I mean it more than just geographically. You know, it is also a, a space. You know, in which, as our first interviewee, uh, President Gallo said, you know, where nowadays we would say students can be unapologetically black. Um, you know, but they were talking about some of the very same things even in the 60s, uh, obviously in different ways, but they were talking about some of the same themes. Uh, that was something that really, really stuck out uh, to me as a, as a thing. Yeah, I, I thought it really helped kind of challenge our assumptions and kind of the stereotype about the traditional college town, right, because you often kind of think about it in your mind as, you know, a place that's maybe wealthier, predominantly white, you know, it's a home to a, a PWI, predominantly white institution. Um, but you don't often think about HBCUs as also having college towns around them, and they kind of create this bubble, this really insular space where students are in many ways shielded by the complexity or other things going on outside of that traditional college budget, uh, bubble. And we, we saw that some of the interviews where people talking about, well, the, the race tension, these other things didn't really affect us because everybody around us was black, everybody was part of this community. Um, and even some of the questions that our students asked around interactions with Rustin or um, Louisiana Tech, and they were like, well, we didn't really go over there. Like, we stayed in our community, we stayed in this bubble, and so we didn't have those particular tensions. I mean, I thought that was really interesting because even myself, I went to an HBCU myself, I still think about college towns as predominantly white spaces. Um, so I, that was a really interesting reflection to me. I think what's interesting about that is when we look at uh, another one of the speakers, Dr. Favors, who you know, wrote Shelter in the Time of Storm, he talks about these refugee, refuges, these oases, and he does so in the lens of an HBCU and the thing itself. Well, in his work, you know, if you're looking at the HBCUs in Atlanta, if you're looking at the HBCUs in North Carolina, they have these larger spaces around it. But what's really interesting about this project is it nuances what it means to be an oasis, that it's it's not not necessarily just the HBCU, but it can also be the surrounding black town. One of the things I know, um, I know President Gallo talked about it in the first in the first episode. He said that you know, growing up in Grambling, you know, he grew up on the street. I, I think, as as he put it, like he thought all African Americans had PhDs, you know, because he grew up in a town where so many of mm -hmm. the African Americans were employees of the then Grambling College, and it, it just made me think how different an experience that must be than from the average African-American growing up at that same time when, you know, as we know, the percentage of African-Americans with PhDs has always been tragically low. 
And um, I, I just think what a, what a, in some ways, exceptional experience that, that must have been. And um, I mean, obviously it worked, you know, it, it worked out well, worked out well for him. Um, you know, and no, and no doubt many, many others who, who lived in Grambling. But like you said, that's kind of a way of challenging the concept of college town. When I think of college town, I mean, I think of, like you said, you know, predominantly white, predominantly affluent, but I also think of it as a place that is a little bit, a, a little bit disappointed that there's a college there. I mean, they, they like it, they benefit from it, but they kind of wish the college students would kind of stay off by their own, by themselves and not, not bother the nice people living in the town. And it seems like Grambling is very different than that traditional stereotype that at least I think of. That was my college experience. I lived in a, went to a college that was in a suburb and um, yeah, they really did not like the college students. Um, that was very clear. That doesn't seem that I didn't hear anything like that from the people who were interviewed. Um, it seemed like they were, you know, they very much enjoyed being part of the the town and university complex. Yeah, you know, a couple things stood out about that particular interview, in terms of like, you know, feeling like yeah, all your neighbors, you know, black PhDs, everybody has neighbors like that. When I was in graduate school. Uh, there was another African-American who lived on my street who was also doing his Ph.D. at the same time. And there was a woman maybe a block away who was older than us, and she had a Ph.D. And he and I were study partners, and we used to joke about this must be the only street in America that has three black Ph.D.s, right? Because it seemed like such an anomaly to us, mm -hmm. right? And, and President Gallo was talking about it being just a normative thing, right? And then he assumed. And you, you have to imagine he's not the only young person who grew up in Grambling or a space like Grambling who also thought that was a very normative thing. And so I thought that was a very interesting uh, thing, definitely. And, you know, on the piece about the community here supporting the school a little bit more, several people talked about when they were talking about their own school experiences in the 60s and the 70s, how many more businesses were in the community, how much more the community was kind of thriving. And no one really kind of addressed what happened to those businesses, but you, you kind of extend out and you think about the loss of black business communities through integration and other things that happened kind of post-civil rights movement. And it kind of flips that narrative. Like instead of there being tension in the community, there's a real recognition that the community recognized how the school and school community itself supported the businesses and supported that kind of economic activity that was happening here. Whereas it's kind of the unspoken thing in a lot of traditional town and gown tensions where people know they get a lot of business from the college students, but they still kind of have that tension there, and yeah, we wish you'd stay in your lane versus here. Um, you can really see a difference in, in Grambling today versus the way some of the interviewees kind of describe their own experience here because it's not as thriving. So a lot of our students do go to Ruston or, or do go engage with tech because they just don't have the same thriving community here that, that might have existed just a generation ago. Yeah, it's a, that, that, that's a fantastic point. Yes, yeah, several of the, the maybe almost all of the interviewees um, uh, talked about that and emphasized that. And um, I mean, you can just drive through Grambling today and, and see that it's a, it's a community that certainly at least the business side of the community is um, not what it had been for sure. And um, it, that actually made me think of one of the, uh, the, the first two people that we brought in for the symposium, uh, Professor Aiello and uh, Professor White, 
I think it was Professor White who was talking. Uh, this is Professor Derek White from um, University of Kentucky. Um, I think he was talking about how um, over the past uh, three or four years, there's been a general uptick in HBCU enrollment mm -hmm. across the country. And um, he was kind of saying that that's, he was talking about how that was related to um, movements like Black Lives Matter and um, things like that that have pushed um, more young African-American students into HBCUs. And that just what you were saying, Dr. Farash, just made me think about the links between, you know, how, I'm not articulating this very well, but um, how the, you know, going to HBCUs is kind of a modern form of supporting black businesses that clearly happened in the 60s, you know, certainly in this area, in the, in the pre-integration period. Um, I'm sure somebody could write a nice paper drawing links between those things in a better way than I can. Mm -hmm. But that's a fantastic observation. Yeah, and I think... Um, because what, what Dr. White also talked about was the impact of integration on sports programs at HBCUs. And so you have to think about how that kind of, you know, trickles down, so to speak, and affects so many other aspects of an HBCU's um, ecosystem, right? So it's not just the sports that get in, impacted. It might impact the, you know, faculty. You might have some um, high-caliber faculty who decide to leave because now they have new opportunities. Um, it's something when I, when I teach African-American uh, studies we talk about with the black newspapers. The same thing happened with integration. A lot of black newspapers died. So you also think about the businesses within these communities that also suffered as black students got more and more access to businesses that previously had been closed off to them. And so how does that impact uh, the, the sustainability of a community or community institutions? A very good point. Um, one of the uh, I think actually the only individual who was mentioned in all of the podcast episodes was the longtime president, Ralph Waldo Emerson Jones. Um, we heard a, a few different opinions of him. Not, not everybody had the same opinion of, of Jones. Um, none of us met him. Uh, none of us knew him, unlike the, the people we interviewed. But what are some of your takeaways from the various things that we, that we heard about him? I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. Um, by saying that I, I thought it was interesting that I think of the of the five people who were interviewed, I think four had at least a somewhat negative um, view of him. And, and I thought uh, Professor Simmons had the most positive of the uh, of the five takes on him. Um, and you know he was, in fact, I think um, Mary Barnes actually sang us a couple of lines of a song, of a protest song um, that students uh, put, wrote about him sometime in the, I guess, in about 1965 when, when she was here. But he was, he was definitely something of a lightning rod for, for students. He was obviously, he was an employee of the white establishment of the state. And he, he had a clear mandate from the state to, you know, keep the students under control. Um, but at the same time, you know, he had, you know, he also had the job of educating the students. Um, and those two jobs clearly, you know, ran, came into loggerheads at, 
at times. So I was just thinking, I, I was just wondering what your takeaways were and listening to the, the five interviewees um, talk about him in various ways. I thought it was interesting how Dr. Simmons recognized there's a, a fine line to walk because at the end of the day, the doors stayed open. At the end of the day, people got their degrees. But of course, there's the, the other side about it of, of how much you go along with sort of the mandate that you're given. It, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting about how much you go along with the mandate you're given. And I thought it was interesting. I wonder what Dr. Gallo would have said had his interview been last and he'd had a chance to kind of listen to other people's reflections because he had the interesting perspective of, you know, growing up in the community and, and being a student here, but then also coming back and being on that administrative side and, and having to make some of those same decisions and deal with those same tensions. And, you know, he articulated very clearly, hey, if I ever have to decide between the city and I'm a resident and a taxpayer and the university and the students, it's, it's the students every time, right? And you have to, you know, kind of imagine, you know, a similar feeling among previous presidents and, and people in responsibility who are saying, hey, the students might not like this, but I have to make the best decision, what I think is the best decision for them graduating and having successful careers beyond the university and not try and fix all the problems in society. And, um, and so even some of the examples that were given about it, like him, you know, trying to change the name of school and kind of joking and, and, and I think it was President Gallo who talked about him. Some people thought he kind of placated himself too much uh, to the establishment. But if he saw that as a means to an end and he was making, you know, the best decision for his students, um, I think as a student, it's sometimes hard to see that because you're always, um, you know, wanting to push the envelope and, and students are always a little bit more radical than, than their faculty who are a little bit more radical than the administration, you know, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting thing because I think, you'd probably find the same tension at every university in America in that epoch, right? You can't be in the 60s and be the head of an institution that's part of the establishment and not have tension with your students who want to protest and participate in everything that's going on in the world while you still want them to show up for class, right? Um, so, I, you know, I, that's, it, it would have been interesting to hear his perspective, you know, in hindsight, being able to look back on that era and how he managed even like emotionally with that tension, like knowing so many of your own students and, and people in your community are critical of you when you're just trying to get them over the finish line. Yeah, he's, he's, there's no doubt that he's a, a complex figure who was in an impossible situation, right? I mean, you know, his, his um, as, as Dr. Simmons said, the, the doors did stay open. And, you know, he, he did manage to you know, bring Grambling from when he became president. Grambling was tiny. Um, I mean, I think it only enrolled two or three hundred students when he became president. And then when he uh, retired in 75, 76, I forget which year it was, Grambling had an enrollment of 7,000 or something like that. Um, you know, he just to oversee that uh, an explosion of that size over the course of a few decades um, is. An incredible feat, um, and being in the impossible situation that he that he was in, um, you know, we 
uh, Jelani Favors, uh, Dr. Jelani Favors, who was here two weeks ago, wrote uh, in his in his book Shelter in a Time of Storm, wrote a lot about uh, uh, President Clark down at Southern, and he mentioned this when uh, Dr. Farage um, led the roundtable that we had. He mentioned that when he was writing about doc, when he was writing about uh, pr President Clark, uh, he actually got uh, an email or a call from one of his friends who said, you know, be nice to President Clark. You know, mm -hmm. he was. He was a race man, you know. He was a man who, you know, stood up and and you know fought for you know fought in the Black Freedom struggle in the early days, and you know he was still trying to do the best thing for the students as best he knew how in the '60s, even if the students uh, didn't agree with him or the it seemed like he may have been placating the white establishment too much um, from their perspective. Even if we move outside of that and look broader at the role of the president of a university, those tenures are usually not very long. They are usually, you know, around a decade and people are brought in for specific reasons. People are brought in, you know, maybe to make a culture change, maybe to uh, sustain something, maybe to be a fundraiser for a particular moment and they accomplish their task and then they move on. And so one wonders if we were to look at specific errors, eras of as Jones thing, you know, he's he's shifting. He's doing different tasks that one typically might expect another president to come in, but part of his legacy is just the length of time that he was here at this university and taking on those multiple different roles that we usually say a president comes in to do one of those things. Yeah. And then goes somewhere else. Yeah, in fact he was you know, I, I don't know how much, um, I don't know if you've read uh, Dr. Aiello's book, uh, Bioclassic, but one of the things he writes about at the end of uh, Jones's tenure, the higher education establishment uh, had changed radically in uh, Louisiana, not just in terms of integration, but also in terms of uh, just the way it was structured institutionally down in Baton Rouge. The Board of Regents was created, um, the, the oversight process from in the state government had changed radically. And when he left, there was, um, and, and President Johnson came in, the university had not adapted to those significant institutional changes. So there were, you know, entire processes that were not done on campus that President Johnson had to, had to sort of create because, and it seems like in large part because Jones was a man from a different era when education, higher education in Louisiana was basically done, you know, they'd give him a check at the beginning of the year and he kind of had to figure things out here and there. And it wasn't all that professionalized, you know, but by the, the mid seventies when he retires, you know, there are, there's oversight, there's auditing, there's, you know, legislative, you know, interest in what's going on at a, um, at, at a more fundamental level than there was before. Not to mention you have, you know, the creation of Title III and federal programs that have oversight and stuff like that. And President Johnson was, you know, able to establish some of those more institutional programs like that. Um, and I know that caused some, some issues at the transition. Um, and I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but... Um, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting man with, as, as Dr. Holt said, a profoundly long legacy at, at the university. Um, 
one of the other things, uh, a number of the people we, we had talked with, in fact, um, I think all of them, except for uh, President Gallo, um, had been here at Grambling in the 60s or 70s, um, either in the town or at, at the university. And the, the university then at college was clearly a different place um, than it is today in a number of ways. Um, what are some of the things that stuck out most to you from the interviews that we, that we heard? about the differences? The thing that leapt out at me was the role of convocations. I'm thinking about convocations because, of course, we, as we're recording this, it's a, a convocation day here at Grambling, and every person touched on what the concept of convocations as they were initially created, as they've continued throughout the years, are as this professionalization sphere, this place to not only, and this is interesting to me, not only to have the students have a moment, but also to show the students to wider audiences, being very um, deliberate about the individuals that are, are brought in to showcase not only a professionalization aspect for the students, but also the inverse to demonstrate what Grambling is doing to those individuals. And, and the, the shifting role of convocations is really interesting, and especially in light of certainly what convocations are, you know, in the, in the present era compared to certainly what they were in, in the 60s. And even probably when, when you first started here uh, a decade or so ago. Yeah, very good, very good point. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, I think every one of them I think every one of the interviewees mentioned mentioned convocations and their importance, and yeah. I think that also ties into the sense of community. I think that has definitely changed. I mean, part of it is you know everybody also spoke about you know because President Gallo is the only one who mentioned your neighbors or also your professors or your mm -hmm. president and accessibility. Whereas I don't I don't live in Grambling, right? Um, <laughs> so I don't know how many of the current faculty and staff live as close to the campus as, you know, in those those generations you're talking about in the 60s and 70s and, and certainly before that. Um, and what does that do to impact the overall kind of community feel on campus when you think about um, some of the challenges that we've had on campus that people complain about in terms of, you know, student behavior and, and you know, outsiders coming on, but how much are we kind of self-policing our space because it's a community and people know that the you know faculty live next door or they're going to be walking on campus in the evenings or at night or showing up but not you know at all the convocations but also all the other events that happen on campus right and one of the um, speakers talked about you know being at an event and, and uh, one of the local high school teachers you know brought her students on campus and as they were moving through I think they were at a football game you know introduced this will be your math teacher this will be your science teacher you know etc and everybody kind of knowing each other um, and having that kind of um, broader sense of community and familiarity and that definitely seems to be something that's not the same but I think that's not just a grambling issue I think that's college towns in general and, and university atmospheres and how much they've changed um, over the past couple of decades but that that really stood out to me it, it I feel like I go to a different institution than the one that they were describing the 60s and 70s yeah, I think you're exactly right and I um I have to agree with you completely. I mean, I don't live in Grambling either, never have. Um, 
and uh, I don't live particularly close to the university now, but even when I did live close to it, um, I mean, I didn't get that same sense of, of community feeling. Um, and yeah, it sounded like they were really describing in, in some cases uh, a place that's, that's quite different. But I, I also think you're right in that it's not just a Grambling thing. I mean, I never got the same sense of, I never got that sense of community or even family as many people described it um, at any of the institutions I ever attended. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, you gentlemen did, but, but I didn't as an undergraduate. Um, when I was an undergrad, it seemed very much to be a, traditions that were, were dying out in the way that you could speak to a past era of, of professors opening their homes in, in a way that sort of a lot of people mentioned uh, in these these talks, but it also seemed to be something that it was it was just uh, that era passing um, in the same way that people that maybe attended that institution in a former decade wouldn't necessarily recognize the institution uh, today in the same way that um, Dr. Faraj mentioned that, you know, it, it seems like we're working at a different institution. But I, I also want to maybe not push back, but... I do want to recognize that, you know, we've got a lot of great faculty that are, uh, live in Grambling, that are from Grambling. Um, and I think we're fortunate that one of the, the people on this project, Miss Days, is very much embedded in the fabric and I think represents a lot of what those individuals spoke about for the, the community. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is, it is important to not go too far down the, the you know, that road. Um, the, the institution has definitely changed. Um, and we, you know, it's, we're, we're historians. How many times have we read, how many times have we read, you know, somebody a hundred years ago, or in your case, in the middle ages, lamenting the past, you know, it's, a, it's one of the most human things to do is lament the, you know, it was always better back in my day. Right. I mean, at least the stuff I read. 19th century American historians were always, you know, looking backwards, trying to trying to fix the world. Um, well, I think that, you know, so one of the interesting points on that is that both Professor Gallo and uh, the, the speaker who was in criminal justice. Uh, Dr. Simmons. Dr. Simmons, yes. They, they both mentioned, like, their passion to continue to fix things. I mean, everyone talked in, in particular ways about wanting to see the institution continue to thrive, but they were really focused on kind of problem solving and, and, and future forward uh, thinking about the institution. And so it's also like, you know, people lamented or talked about how it was, but also being very clear, like the institution has to change to keep up with the times. And Professor Gallows particularly was talking about technology and how that comes in. Because I was having a different conversation with, with um, someone recently about how much that sense of community on college campuses has changed, but a lot of it has to do with technology. So students don't come to office hours because they can email you, right? And so it's so much easier for them to have access to you. Digitally, they don't need the face-to-face -face interaction in the same way anymore. Um, and office hours used to be when, you know, you'd meet other students because they were waiting in the hallway for somebody else. And, and, and so it created a sense of community in a department. Um, and so technology has changed, and I think Grambling is certainly trying to, to make those adjustments to figure out how it fits into this new space and creates a, a new type of community, um, considering all these changes that are going on. We had a conversation in my class the other day when the students were making jokes about uh, 
you know, the issue of respectability politics, which came up a little bit in the conversations, you know, about, you know, you escort, escort you know, you know, somebody back to a dorm, but you don't linger, as opposed to, and they were joking about, you know, you're not supposed to wear hoodies in class or bonnets and other stuff, but they all do it, right? And so the school kind of has to adjust to them and, and their cultural norms and, and expectations. Um, so they still feel like it's a welcoming and a safe space, right? And so how do you kind of find that balance in a contemporary age? Yeah, it's a, that's that's a very good point. I mean, the the you know things always change, right? You know, if there's anything that I've learned in studying history is that change is constant, and um, you know that's it's a good point about the digital communication. Um, I hadn't actually thought about that, but it makes plenty of sense. Um, probably ninety percent of the student questions I get are you know via email instead of a student coming to ask me um, in my office and. There's nothing new about that. It happened when I was a, you know, when I when I was an adjunct, you know, teaching in grad school. You know, students didn't come to my office hours then either. <laughs> um, so that makes that makes a lot of sense, and you know, gives a gives another idea to another dimension rather to the idea that we were talking about earlier of, of the spaces. You know, how Grambling exists as a digital space today. And um, in a way, this project and this podcast is actually a part of that rambling as a digital space, which is kind of beyond my ability to discuss or think about, but definitely something that, that is worth theorizing about. Well, if I, I jump on that last point, one of the things that really jumped out to me is how necessary it is to capture some of these stories. Because, you know, and to my first point about longevity, it was really interesting to hear people talk about what they've been able to see at the institution over this time, but also some of the nuance that they added to my own understanding of the institution. Um, and I'm sure, you know, people who've been here maybe 20 or 30 years would still learn something from these conversations because of the nuance that people were, you know, adding to the, the history and understanding of, of Grambling or why certain changes were made or, you know, when certain things happened or some of the conversations that were had around some of these issues. And so, I, you know, it made me think, you know, to your point, Dr. Holt, there are other faculty who've been around for a long time or, or people like Ms. Days who've been around and grown up in Grambling. You know, how can we capture more of these stories, right? So we can really kind of nuance our understanding and the history of the university. Um, and so I thought it was a great um, kind of collection, kind of an opening, you know, uh, series of interviews, but really kind of also highlighted the need to capture more of these stories. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, and and we plan on doing that. So why don't we spend the the last few minutes that we've got here talking a little bit about the the that pro the project in the abstract, and um, you know the kinds of stories that that we've heard, and you know where we want to go in the future and the value that it has. I know, Professor Holt, you're working on. Um, you have a, a grant that you're working on that we've talked a little bit about so far, where we've brought in some people to to uh, talk about some of these things. Um, and I know you've got a class right now that's doing, that's preparing to do some work with some oral history stuff. Um, have you talked to them at all about this project and, or related things? And what, what do the students think about it? And what do they, they say about it? Yeah, so I think the, the great thing is all of these projects are, are working on different aspects of the same idea. The idea of overarching thesis being the voices of, of Grambling, nuancing, understanding, interpreting, recording aspects of the African-American experience in 
Northern Louisiana, but as, as we've we've learned, we can broaden that. You know, in, in HBCUs, in rural towns, in in the long civil rights movement, and so I think the the great thing is through these these grants, we've been able to work on recording these these voices, these these people that have had these lived experiences that maybe nuance our understanding of, of these topics as they've uh, tri traditionally been been written about. And so moving forward, I think the students are very excited to take ownership of the project, that it moves from being set up from the, the faculty perspective to take ownership from the students who can start to uh, chart these spaces and chart these spaces based on their own particular interests. You know, this one student said, I wonder what the bowling team looked like 20 years ago. Questions, interests that I wouldn't, wouldn't even think about, but getting at what, what Dr. Bradley said about really just asking questions about the space. You know, what did things look like? Where did people hang out? Where did people eat? And so I see that as, as moving forward, that the students are really excited um, to move past this sort of knowledge acquisition phase that we've worked worked on and to really test the possibilities of, of what voices we can get. And we're fortunate that we've got um, a curriculum in the history department that we can, you know, embed this sort of, of work within, um, you know, within our African-American history classes, within our senior research project, within our U.S. history classes, uh, within our, you know, women's history classes to really try uh, and, and basically create an archive. I think that's what we're really, you know, trying to do here is one lament, um, certainly with, with our move to the digital library, is that there's not necessarily through, you know, the, the water damage that we've lost a lot of the archive, but the people are able to help us build the archive, and that's what I look forward to, and I think that's what the students are really excited about uh, moving forward, certainly into the spring and then even beyond, is is building that archive and getting those voices from the people that have lived really interesting experiences. That's that's the thing is, you know, we know these people, we know Dr. Simmons, we know Dr. Mayo um, from, you know, certain interactions, but they have such other interesting experiences, uh, other interesting things that they've lived that, you know, they can bring to this table. And, um, and I'm excited to find the other people uh, out there that are maybe are not necessarily like we think of, the people that, you know, one-off do the sort of the big thing, but as Dr. Farage mentioned, the people that have that longer history uh, to go along with, with the story. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, that I think uh, this oral history project, the, the broader project, um, one of the strengths I think that it can bring is that it also, I think it's important when we're talking about an HBCU and, and a town like Grambling, a school like Grambling, it's important that we get voices that are sometimes suppressed in traditional written sources. I mean, most of the written sources we're going to find, most of the written primary material we're going to find about Grambling in the 60s and certainly even earlier um, is going to be primarily filtered through a white lens. Um, we don't, unfortunately, have the Gramblingite from any time prior to 1972 because it was destroyed in a fire. So the newspaper records that we have of Grambling are 
almost exclusively written by white journalists. Um, the all of the state documentation coming out of Baton Rouge is going to be filtered through, you know, a white uh, government that had a very clear idea on what it thought Grambling was and should be. Um, so one of the things that these oral histories can do is provide a non-white view, an African-American view of an African-American space, which I think is ultimately necessary. Um, I don't think any, I don't think there are too many, you know, white people in Louisiana growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, who had the experience of having a lot of African-American PhDs in their street. They've actually probably never met one in their entire life. Um, and that's the sort of experience that we have the ability to capture with these oral histories. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I like about it. Um, one of the other things is that we structured this grant specifically, the grant that underwrote this series as a, as a kind of proof of concept for our bigger project. And from my perspective, I think it's worked. I think it's proved the concept. What do, what do you uh, gentlemen think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd like to get some feedback from some students who actually engage with the podcast because I think, you know, uh, to Dr. Holt's point around building an archive and, you know, getting students more involved, I found the stories really interesting. You know, you would hope that you'd find some students who also find them interesting and realize, hey, this is an opportunity to uh, approach history from a way they traditionally don't think about it. They always kind of think about it as something that's dry before their time that's inaccessible in a particular way. Um, and so doing oral history projects, allowing you to talk to someone who actually lived those experiences and you can engage and ask your own questions and, and get at some of that nuance um, and just hear sometimes funny, sometimes frivolous stories, uh, I think is really interesting. And so that's what I'm most interested in. Like how, how do students engage with it and how much can we use it to kind of spark a new interest in, in history uh, among our student body. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Dr. Holt? <laughs> well, Dr. Holt is doing most of the work with students uh, this semester, and uh, next semester we hope to uh, actually have those students out in the community um, recording uh, as many interviews as, as we can. I, I think we set a goal of about 20 or 30 by, uh, the, end of, by the end of the semester in the spring. And um, I, I, th I think, I hope that the students will enjoy that as much as I have. Uh, I know that I've enjoyed doing the interviews and I've really enjoyed just talking with, with, with these individuals. Actually, one of my favorite parts is kind of the phone calls or the, or the talks to, to prep them for, for what we were going to talk about because every single one of them, you know, said in one way or another, you know, how happy they were to kind of go back down through that memory lane and, and you know, in some cases, people were telling me that, oh, I haven't thought about this in 50 years. And, you know, that was, that was some, of the, some of the highlights of my life. And, you know, I really just enjoyed going down, down memory lane. Um, so that's one of the things that, really, that I really enjoyed, just, just as a person, not even a historian, just, just as a person. Thank you for listening to our Voices of Gremlin podcast. Questions were written by Simone Mon, Natalie Warren, Aja Edwards, and Alexandra Williams, all students in Gremlin State University's History Department. The Voices of Gremlin podcast is a production of the History Department at Gremlin State University. 
It is developed by the students and faculty. Funding for the 2021 Rebirth Grants has been administrated by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities and provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan and the NEH Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan Initiative. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And thank, thank you, you so much, much for listening. listening.